I'm Michael Williams. This week I would like to pay tribute to my good friend and colleague, storyteller Peter Snow, who sadly died on December 18th, 2019. Back in 2013, when The Teller and the Tale first started, Peter was my very first guest, and I'd like to return to that interview from 2013. So without further ado, my interview with storyteller Peter Snow. Now in my work as a storyteller and story coach, I've had the pleasure of meeting some fine storytellers and hearing some wonderful stories, and today is no exception. Joining me is my guest, Peter Snow, storyteller and author from Edinburgh. He's recently published two books, The Rosalind Treasury and The Shifty Lad, and we'll hear more about those a bit later on. In addition to being an author and a storyteller, Peter has worked as a teacher, poet, musician, not to mention that in the past you were a goat herd and uh, a psychiatric nurse, a man of many talents. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Peter, many of our listeners might assume that uh, uh, storytellers grew up, I mean, had the, the privilege of growing up in, in households where stories were, were told, parents and uh, grandparents uh, might have uh, kind of inundated them with, uh, with, with stories um, when they were young. What was your past like? What was, uh, what, what was growing up like for you and, and how did stories play a part in your life? Well, stories were incredibly important to me when I was growing up. I had uh, quite a lot of asthma when I was a kid. And my dad used to come in and tell me stories when I was lying in bed, not well. And this was so important. Uh, So much a part of the healing process, really, was him just telling me stories. And they would be stories that he would make up as he sat there beside me. Mm. Uh, Stories about um, an old hero of his, Prospector Joe, an old Western hero. (laughs) And there were other stories about a guy called Submarine Sid, But uh, I didn't care for the submarine Sid stories quite so much. I preferred the Prospector Joe ones because I Mm. sort of understood that setting, you know. It was sort of of a Western setting, wasn't it? Very much a Western setting, yes. Because the thing is, you know, I grew up in the 1950s. And in these islands, growing up in the 1950s was basically a grey experience. You know, we wore grey clothes to go to school. We short grey trousers, grey shirts, grey pullovers grey socks. My dad wore a grey suit to go to work. Everything was grey. The sky was grey. <laughs> still is. <laughs> and still is, actually, to this day. But one of the great things was my Uncle Ted actually stayed in New York. He worked for BOAC in those days. And he used to send us these enormous great parcels through the post of the colour supplements, the comic sections from American newspapers. And they colonised me. I became sort of in my soul, to some extent anyway, American. And I think John Lennon had exactly the same experience with Mm. feeling that, you know, the the cultural centre for us growing up in the 50s at that time was really not here. But having said that, when I started reading stories, somehow the whole imaginative world that belongs to these islands began began to come alive. Mm. Mm-hmm. The old Scottish stories, Irish stories, and the old folk tales, you know, they really began to make the world make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. actually helped me to feel at home in my own place. Peter, when did you, when did you get the call to be a storyteller? When did you realize that, uh, that the, the, there might be, this might be your path? 
Well, I think it must have arisen out of the teaching, you know, because so important is storytelling to teaching. You mm-hmm. can't do without it. And of course, you, you, you taught English and drama. I did, yes. yes English yes. and drama, yes, and uh, similar and, subjects. And, and you, you've spent many years teaching um, in, a, in a Rudolf Steiner school or Wal- Waldorf school, as That's it's known right. in North America, yeah. um, where storytelling is very much a part of the art of teaching. It's absolutely inextricable. Yes, it's it's so basic to the whole role of the teacher, the storyteller. Have you always thought of yourself as a storyteller, or w- was there a time when you made a kind of conscious choice to um, to kind of go down that road? <laughs> when I was a kid, I was visiting a friend, and there was a wee bit of a problem in the house in the opposite in the street where he lived, and there was something that had caught fire in a very small way, and a fire engine came and they sorted it just like that. But when I got home to my mum, I felt that the story wasn't enough. Mm. I really had to make more of it, you know. So I told this whole great story of terrible tragedy and father coming home from work and fainting in the street when he saw the devastation of his house. Completely untrue. But I felt that somehow the story needed a bit more. Mm. And um, so... (laughs) I sort of had a bit of a reputation as being a storyteller, you know, in quotation marks. But fortunately, that whole thing was redeemed by actually getting into storytelling itself, first through telling stories in the classroom, which were a necessary part of one's teaching, but also then taking it a little bit further. You know, you're helping children to write their own stories, um, and then, you know, there's the wonderful Storytelling Centre in, in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Scottish Storytelling Centre. The Scottish Storytelling Centre, yes. which is such an important part of Edinburgh's culture, and in fact, Scotland's culture. And storytelling in Scotland is is a very lively part of, of the culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um Peter, you mentioned uh, you mentioned earlier about um, when, when you were young and you gave us that example of your father... Uh, telling you stories, sharing stories with you when you were ill, and how healing uh, that that was for you. That's right. Can you maybe just say a bit more about about this this healing quality of, of storytelling? Do you still see that aspect of of storytelling, that 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 healing quality of storytelling in your work today? It's there, you know. I mean, I think one of the most important things when I think about it, and this obviously arises out of an awareness of the fact that my dad was telling me stories when I had an asthma attack. But, you know, there's a breathing in a story. And I think that when you get that sense of how the rhythm of the story works, if you're telling the story in the right way, you can actually allow that rhythm to settle into the person you're telling it to. Sometimes... You know, if you're stressed, if you're anxious, having the right rhythm can be a healing experience in itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And focusing on the breath is a well-known healing um, uh, task. You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's part of the whole mindfulness movement, for example, Yes, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a very um, laudable thing that people have the possibility now to you know, to deal with all kinds of difficult situations through the techniques that come about through mindfulness. But apart from that, um, I think allowing your whole being 
starting with the breathing, but then going into the whole sense of your rhythmic system altogether, the rise and fall of your lungs, the rise and fall of your pulse, the, to get a bit more technical, you know, the cerebrospinal fluid going into the brain and then draining mm. down the spinal column and then back into the brain again. That whole rhythmic aspect that lives within the human being can find itself given a kind of pace by the story that you tell, that you're telling. And I think that this is one of the most fundamental healing properties of the story is the rhythm. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. Well, apart, apart from the fact that, you know, you can have imaginations that are in themselves healing. Of course, of course. Yeah. And, and I would imagine just the, the, the very act of sharing with other human beings and uh, and the opportunity to share a story and to listen a, listen to a story and that intimacy that storytelling and here of course we're talking about oral storytelling oral right? storytelling face yeah. to face face to face Scott say eye to eye, eye heart to heart yeah yeah mind to mind mind to mind yes. yeah but in in that intimacy of that of that sharing I think uh, I, I would agree with you that I think a great deal of um, healing. Um, uh, takes place as well. I entirely agree. I think that storytelling at its best is something that happens in a situation where you are together. I, I think it's a great thing to have stories on the TV or on CD or, you know, on uh, your MP3 player, whatever. That's great. But I think if you want the healing quality of the story, it has to be eye to eye, mind to mind, heart to heart. How about a story? This is a story from Ireland. In the days when Fergus was the High King in Tara, a sailor came running into the court to say, the men of Lochlan are on the sea. The Viking warriors were on the sea in their long dragon prow ships. Well, this caused King Fergus a great deal of upset and worry. He'd just been fighting a great war in the west of Ireland, and his army was in no fit state to take on the great men of Lochlan. And so he sent for Ushna the sage. Now Ushna was a very wise man. And Fergus said to Ushna, Ushna, I would have you go across the Moyle stream to Dalrieda. And ask the Scottish king there, who is my vassal and who serves me, to get an army together, ready to meet the men of Lochlaun, for I hear that the armies of Lochlaun are on the sea, even as we speak. Well, Ushna got his curra, and he paddled across that moil stream to the country of Alaba, or Scotland as we call it today. And he made his way to the king of Dalrieda, and he asked for the help that Fergus needed. And on his way back across the Moyle stream, Ushna thought there was just time to cast a hook in amongst the fishes of the sea and catch something for his dinner later when he got home. And as he was fishing, and he was being very successful in catching many bright silver darlings and putting them in his sack, over the horizon, and coming very fast, he saw the ships of the men of Loch Laun. 
What was he to do? He knew that the king of Dalriada would not have his army ready. In time to fight the men of Lochlan, and Fergus was still waiting for him to come back from the king of Dalriada. And so very boldly he paddled his curra out to meet the leading ship. And he was hoisted aboard. And who are you? said the captain of the ship of the men of Lochlaun. My name is Ushna the sage. I serve King Fergus of Erin, said Ushna. Oh, you serve the Irish king? Very good. <laughs> Does he know they are coming? Oh, I think he has heard a waif word on the subject, said Ushna. Well, he'd better be ready for us, said the captain of the ship. Well, you know, said Ushna, I think that um, you may have a surprise or two coming. Oh, really? <laughs> well, you go and stand up there, said the captain, and pointed to a place in the bows of the ship where Ushna was to stand as they made their journey. Now, Ushna reached into the sack where he had the fish that he'd caught, and he held one out into the air, and a seagull came down straight away to take it from his hand, and it perched on the gunwale of the ship. And Ushna started to speak in a very low voice to the seagull. And the seagull, once he'd gobbled down the fish, said, <laughs> And the captain came forward and said, What were you doing just then? Ushna said, I was just telling a messenger from Fergus's hosts of the air that the men of Loch Laun were coming to fight his armies. Oh, and what did he say in answer to that? Oh, well, perhaps you heard him laughing. I don't know what there is to laugh at, said the captain, and put his fingers to his chin. But Ushna remained in the bows of the ship, and he took another fish from his sack, and he held it over the side of the ship, and it wasn't long before a dolphin came up. And Ushna threw the dolphin, the fish, and the dolphin gulped down the fish, and Ushna gave a few words to the dolphin, who looked up and went, <laughs> and the captain said, What were you doing there talking to that dolphin? And Ushna said, Oh, I was just telling a messenger from King Fergus's hosts of the sea that the men of Loch Long were on their way to invade his country. Mm -hmm. Well, now that is a little bit strange, but <laughs> I don't think they will give us much to worry about, said the captain, but he was looking a wee bit more puzzled and worried. And now as they looked over to the coast, along the Mull of Kintyre, they could see an army marching. The king of Dalriada had assembled his troops and they were marching down the Mull of Kintyre to take ship to go and stand beside Fergus against the men of Lochlaun. 
What is happening over there? said the captain. Oh, said Ushna, I believe the king of Dalryada has spotted a rat in his larder, and he sent his men to catch it. They all serve King Fergus of Erin, you understand. Hmm, and by this time the captain of the ship was looking very, very thoughtful indeed. Well, he said, I don't think that King Fergus has much to teach us about fighting. Oh, well, I think there might be one thing that King Fergus can teach you, said Ushna. And what's that? That's fear. Fear? We men of the Scandinavian lands do not know fear. What is fear? Ah, said Ushna. Come over here. And he held out the sack that contained his fish. Reach into this sack. This sack contains fear, said Ushna. And the captain reached his hand in amongst the fish in the sack. And a shiver went down his whole body. What's it like? said Ushna. Oh, it is cold, and it is all moving and slippery. And he pulled his hands out, and there were silver scales up and down his arm. Oh, and it is colouring my skin. Oh. And how do you feel? said Ushna. I feel cold and trembling, and oof, a little bit horrible said the captain of the men of Loch Laun. Well, that, said Ushna, is just a little taste of what King Fergus and his hosts of the land, of the sea and the air can teach you, O captain of the men of Loch Laun. Hmm, said the captain of the ship. And soon he was giving orders for the ships to turn around and make sail Back the way had come, back the way they had come, back to the land of Loch Laun. And Ushna climbed back into his curra and paddled back to the green land of Erin to report to King Fergus that the day of the coming of the men of Loch Laun was not yet. Wonderful story, Peter. Thank you. I can smell the fish in the air in the studio. <laughs> My hands are covered in scales. <laughs> that was that was lovely. That was lovely. Peter, where do you get the stories from? You hear stories, you know, from other storytellers, and you read stories because there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful, absolutely second to none possibility of stories in, in the printed word. I mean, I have a I have a room full of storybooks at home, and some stories come through the ether. Mm, mm -hmm. Stories come find to you, you come to you in dreams. They yes. come to you as you speak. Yes. yes. Yeah. Now there'll be there'll be folk out there listening to this who are fascinated by storytelling and and want to do more than just listen to stories, which is wonderful. They might want to actually get up and and become storytellers themselves. What advice would you have to someone who's who's interested in in getting into storytelling and like, like yourself, and and I'm thinking particularly that was that was a, a long story and there was a lot of details in there and I know a lot of people would say oh I could never remember uh, I could never remember all of that how does he do that that's that's magic. Well, first of all, I would say if you want to get into storytelling, do it. 
There is no world like the world of storytelling. Storytellers are wonderful people. And it's a wonderful sort of, I can't say brotherhood or sisterhood, a wonderful siblinghood of people mm. who mm. tell stories. They are such wonderful people, you know. Uh, all kinds, all sorts. Um, but um, the other part of your question was... Oh, memory. Yes, a memory. Well, for me, it's a question of seeing the pictures. You know a good storyteller by the way they live into the pictures of the story they're telling mm. so that you can live into them too. Mm. I was at the Tall Tales Oscars storytelling thing at the Storytelling Centre in Edinburgh the other day, and there were some marvellous storytellers there. I might mention Tim Porteous mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of... We're hoping to have him on as a guest in the yeah, future. A, yes. a great storyteller. Mm -hmm. And there's some wonderful storytellers. And the ones who really captured the whole storytelling thing were those who made it come alive for you in your own imagination. They lived it. You lived it. Ken Shapley, another great storyteller. Mm -hmm. He told a wonderful story. Um, yeah, so I think it actually has to do not with remembering the words, it's with remembering the images, the pictures. Those are the important things, I think. Good advice. Good advice. Peter, you, you not only tell stories, you write stories, and you've collected, um, you've, you've published a couple of books. That's right. Um, yeah. which, uh, which include stories. Yeah, thanks um, for mentioning. Well, yeah. the Roslyn Treasury, um, and maybe we'll talk about that and explain mm -hmm. to people that don't know what Roslyn is all about. Sure. And you've also published another uh, collection of, of, of stories, The Shifty Lad. That's right. Yeah. Um, maybe say something first about the Roslyn Treasury. Well, the Roslyn Treasury is a book of stories connected with this extraordinary building, 15th century building, just outside of Edinburgh, about eight miles south of Edinburgh. It was built, it took about 40 years in the building. It was built by the third Earl of Orkney, William Sinclair. And it's unique, I think, in, in architecture. Some say it is only the, the bit that was finished of what was meant to be a much larger project, a cathedral-sized building, but it never happened. Um, but the, the wonderful thing about Roslyn Chapel, as it's called, or um, the Collegiate Church of St. Matthew the Apostle, as it's properly known, is that it's full of the most wonderful carvings. And you can see carvings of... Adam and Eve, those are very damaged, actually, but you can also see carvings of Abraham and Isaac, also damaged. But most of the carvings are not damaged. They're still in a fairly pristine state. And they represent stories, mostly Bible stories. I would say a great deal of Old Testament stories and also what you might call stories that are part of the Christian tradition, but not actually captured in the Bible, such mm -hmm. as the story of St. Veronica um, and various other tales. And so because it's not necessarily the case that automatically everybody knows these stories anymore, mm. I still think they're tales worth telling. Now, you know, you can, uh, I don't care what, you know, what, what church you go to, what religion you have, or whether you have no religion at all. The tales that are connected with the carvings in Roslyn are still tales that are worth telling. And so I tried to get together the stories behind the carvings. 
or at least some of the carvings, to tell the stories behind all of them would be impossible. Mm. Um, so there's there's that. And I would say, you know, visit Rosalind Chapel if you get the chance. It's well worth a visit. I wonder if you could say something just briefly about one of the the most perhaps controversial uh, carvings is the is the, the uh, Apprentice Pillar. Oh, the Apprentice Pillar, yes. Well, there's a wonderful tale about the Apprentice Pillar, which is that while the chapel was being built, the Master Mason went away to France for whatever reason. I think he, he might well have been a French man. There were French Masons working on building Roslyn. And meanwhile, one of his apprentices had a dream about how one of the pillars at the east end of the chapel should look. And he carved it in pine wood and showed it to Earl Sinclair, who approved the design, and so it was made. And when the Master Mason came back and saw this wonderful, beautifully carved pillar with its spirals of, of um, vine leaves travelling up the length of the, of the pillar, he was so overcome with rage of jealousy and envy that he took his maul, his, his hammer, his mel, as it's sometimes called, and struck the apprentice dead on the spot. That's the story. Mm, mm. But as it happens, there is a very similar story told about a number of other ecclesiastical buildings, such as um, Lincoln Cathedral, the Cathedral of Reims, Reims, in France, and um, Mellish Episcopi in uh, Somerset, and various other places. So it seems to be a tale that is told in, the, in connection with the building of churches or ecclesiastical buildings. So I think there's maybe something underlying that. Mm, mm. And one of the tales they tell at Roslyn is that there's supposed to be the carving of the head of the apprentice with the wound in his brow very clearly marked. But when you look more closely at that carving, you see that a beard has been chopped off his chin, had been hacked off his chin. Of course, apprentices weren't allowed to grow beards. So who was this bearded man oh, with see. a wound in the brow? Mm. And many people believe that it's not the apprentice at all, but it is meant to be a representation of Hiram Abif, the architect who built the Temple of Solomon for King Solomon mm. all those years ago. And there are other references to Solomon's temple within the chapel. It's quite interesting to see them. Well, you've obviously taken Rosalind Chapel to heart. And I understand you, you sometimes uh, take people out there on, on tours. It has been known, but of course the, the chapel runs its own um, guide you know, guiding system these mm -hmm. days, and they are very good. They're very, you know, very uh, learned people. So if you if you have the opportunity to get to Edinburgh, um, you must take in Roslyn Chapel. I think it's well worth the visit, yeah. It's a, a, and there's a very good new cafe there as well, and bookshop. Excellent, yeah. excellent. Fine wee shop. Tell us something about your other book, The Shifty Lad. The Shifty Lad. Uh, I was asked to get together a, a group of stories from the Celtic lands, and so I had this story a West Highland tale of the shifty lad. And I told his story, but then there's a story, there's a point in the story where the shifty lad gets into terrible trouble. And he knows that he has to keep the dark stranger who's going to take him away forever 
he has to keep him at bay until the first rays of dawn break in the sky. So what is he going to do? And so he begins to tell tales. The dark stranger is particularly interested in human beings and what they do and their experiences. He's always interested in human beings. And so the shifty lad tells tales. And this way, he's able to keep the dark stranger mm. interested <laughs> until the first rays of light. Mm. But, of course, the shifty lad is quite a rascal. And I don't want to spoil it for those of you who I hope will rush out and buy the book straight away. Available mm. on Amazon, by the way. Um, but maybe he doesn't get clean away with his, uh, uh. Yeah, with his shiftiness. Well, there's uh, maybe we'll just leave it as a bit of a cliffhanger. And uh, as Peter uh, just said, you can uh, you can get that book, The Shifty Lad, or and or the Roslyn uh, Treasury on Amazon, uh, and just uh, search for Peter Snow, P. L. Snow, P. L. Snow, P. L. Snow, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll find them. And speaking of which, um, do you have a website that people could find out, uh, could go to, and find out more about uh, your own work? That's true. Uh, I have a website. It's www plsnow.co.uk Now, just before we go, Peter, I wondered if you had a, a riddle that you could leave us with. Try this one. A house full, a hole full, but you cannot gather a bowl full. Mm, could you repeat that again? I will. A house full, a hole full, but you cannot gather a bowl full. And that was my interview with storyteller Peter Snow, who sadly passed away on the 18th of December 2019. Peter will, of course, be missed dearly by his uh, family and friends, but his stories live on, and you can learn more about Peter's work at petersnowstories.com. Well, until next time, folks, this is Michael Williams for The Teller and the Tale, saying... Goodbye for now.